really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, results, great interviews, and just so much more, all about the world of rugby union. Well, who am I? I'm David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. But this week, however, it's all about the European competition. So why don't we just skip the rest of the admin and just jump right in? So our current updates, and there's at least a a little bit of news on my work front, so pretty soon I'm going to start teaching the ELL students at my school. ELL stands for English Language Learners. That's going to be in just a few weeks, and I'm going to be doing that until the very end of the school year, which just has me really excited. So I don't have much experience with it. I have some, but um, it's just, it's a great opportunity. It's something I really love, and, and who knows, maybe this will turn out to be sort of my little niche, you know? He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! Well, Isa, it's not exactly news, but it is a good story. So, I found this week uh, in The Guardian a great article or interview with Sarah Cox, who's the world's first female professional rugby union referee. Uh, In the article, they discuss, you know, what kind of a battle it's been for her as a trailblazer or, you know, really a pioneer in this area. The analogy she uses right off the bat, it just seems so apt and really sort of pulls you right into the article. And she says, and I'm quoting here, It's like walking through a patch of stinging nettles, suggests the world's first female professional referee. Quote, if you're the first one to do it, you're going to get stung. But if you're the next person behind me, I've already created a path for you and you just need to walk, unquote. So, you know, continuing from the article itself here, even in supposedly enlightened 2022, it is already clear that professional rugby is not yet a total, uh, totally level playing field. And as Cox puts it, quote, there's always going to be a little bit of friction, unquote. So the article goes on to explain exactly what is meant by all this. And it's just, it's really a great read if you just have, you know, only a few minutes. I've linked it in the show notes, of course. Um, If you watch the Prem, you will have seen her out there. And now's your chance to get to know just a little bit more about her as a person. I really highly recommend checking it out. And moving on to the thoughts of the week. So a former coach of the Springboks uh, that won the Rugby World Cup back in 2007, he's come out this week to urge South Africa rugby to go back to the way things used to be in terms of uh, player selection criteria. So to quote right from the article, as always, linked in the show notes, quote, South Africa's 2007 World Cup winning uh, coach Jack White has called on the Springboks to stop selecting foreign-based players. The current holders of the William Webb Ellis Trophy reversed their, quote, home-only, unquote, policy in 2018 after a dire couple of years for their national team. The decision reaped rewards almost immediately as a number of high-profile stars, including Faf de Klerk, Willie LaRue, and Francois Lowe, were permitted to return to the international fold while playing their club rugby up in Europe. However, in an interview with South African Rugby Magazine, the Blue Bulls' veteran boss has argued that the Springboks should immediately revert to their pre-2018 approach in an effort to stop top talent leaving South African clubs. Quote, Now is a good time before the next contracting cycle for South Africa rugby to draw a line on picking players who are contracted to overseas clubs, unquote, White said. Quote, South Africa are world champions and South Africa rugby did something that has worked because in 2018, when Rassi Erasmus was appointed, the current cycle of Springbok players were all overseas. But we can't allow that with the next cycle of players. South African franchises have basically become academies for overseas clubs because the top senior talent is overseas. We play juniors from schools 
who, who wouldn't otherwise have been involved in senior rugby. And then those youngsters are 21 or 22. They've got experience under their belt. And the overseas clubs sign them and have them for the peak of their careers, unquote. So, got to tell you, I just never know what to think about this stuff. And so if you're a Vox fan listening or you're someone with strong feelings about how these rules work, either in South Africa or really anywhere else, please get in touch. Let me know what you think. It's a conversation that always seems to be ongoing and always seems to be churning and bubbling beneath the surface, even if you're not hearing about it directly. And I want to hear from somebody, you know, with a little more insight. Drop me a line. Fill me in here, please. Okay, and there was so much rugby this weekend, so let's get to our reviews. Now, because I couldn't actually watch and therefore only have scores to report, let's start this week with the Challenge Cup. So on Friday, we had Breve at home to face Poe, the final being 33-25 for the home side. Then Biarritz would lose at home to Newcastle. Falcons kind of bouncing back from my, uh, you know, really (laughs) basically calling them crappy last week. Then on Saturday, Benetton at home for the Dragons, and they won handily. I don't think the Dragons even got a try in that one. It was 23-9, to all told. Then, ugh, London Irish. They're at home facing Edinburgh. 21-20 to was the score at the end, and it was just because of an incredibly late score by the Irish. That was a tough one for Edinburgh, I should be sure. Uh, Worcester went down. They did score 23 points, but they still lost by 23-34 to Toulon. And Perpignan were at home for Lyon and got absolutely smacked. It was 6-37. to And uh, to be clear, so next week, these matches, I, I believe, are still going to be unavailable to me. But come the knockout stages, they should be available, I think, through the EPCR website. So stay tuned. I will absolutely let you, let you all know about that. So that being said, let's move on to the mountain of rugby that I did manage to watch. It was a good thing it was a long weekend for us here in the United States because I needed it to catch all this stuff. So the Champions Cup on Friday, the 14th, we had Cardiff at home for Harlequins. By the way, if you hear any like slamming or, or sort of big noises, my, my son is on the floor directly above me doing cosmic yoga to YouTube. And uh, I love that too much to tell him not to. And uh, so sorry if it makes any weird noises. Anyway, two asides before we actually talk about the actual Cardiff versus Harlequins game. So one... Harlequins were, again, inexplicably in their abominable G.I. Joe kits. They, they look like, I don't know, toy soldiers on a summer break or something with the shorts. Also, can anyone tell me what kind of pitch are they playing on in Cardiff? So it looks exactly like the field I had at the last college I worked for. It's that weird, that rubber crumb stuff that's sort of supposed to simulate dirt. What's the deal with that? Like whenever somebody hits the ground, they get up looking like they landed on an anthill. It's just, it's very creepy. But... In any event, the actual game, and I, I admit I half expected a blowout for this one, and I was very happy to be wrong. Cardiff actually enjoyed a slim two-point lead at the break despite a yellow card. Harlequins scored almost immediately in the second half, but Cardiff answered back, scoring a powerful try just after my guy, Alex Dombrandt, went off on a yellow card of his own. Alex, what you doing? He didn't look happy about it. Gotta say, with the way things are interpreted nowadays, Joe Marler absolutely got away with a potential red card after swinging one of his gigantic arms into a Cardiff player's face and head, Uh, but the ref just didn't even bother to take a look at it. Very surprising, but I guess, you know, luck is always a factor in these things. So as if in karmic retribution, though, Tyrone Green, he kind of flubbed the kick he was trying to handle and zip-zap Cardiff get another, and then like a whirlwind, they score yet another off off of some beautiful quick ball. Suddenly, it was 33-19 to 19 in favor of the Welsh side, with only a couple of minutes before the three-quarter mark. So, naturally, Harlequins had them right where they wanted them. <laughs> so the scoring wasn't finished, of course. By the way, 
what a great Friday match. I was so happy for this one. Uh, Danny Care, he once again showed off his power game with a beauty of his own. You know, he really provided a spark for his team, much like when he provided this first spark for humanity, when he, you know, stole fire from Mount Olympus back in his early 30s. So that made it a seven-point match, and Cardiff looked on the verge of scoring another when Dombrand, fresh from the sin bin, came back and immediately got a turnover. My word, is he good. So it remained 33-26 to 26, heading into the final 10 minutes, but Cardiff started to ring up penalty after penalty. They got themselves yellow-carded again with Harlequins in great attacking position. Seemingly inevitably, Marcus Smith scored a try of his own right under the post with under five minutes to play, tying it up moments later. Quote, it's entirely in line with this script writer, unquote, say the comms, and yeah, that's about right. Harlequins again looked in position to score the winning points. However, Cardiff had other ideas, getting what probably should have been a game-ending turnover. But, well, my friends, this is Harlequins we're talking about. And despite Cardiff having possession after the clock had gone red, they couldn't get out of their own way. They handed Mr. Smith a kicking opportunity right smack dab in front of the sticks, and we all know what happens when, when you do that. 33-36 to 36 was the losing score for Cardiff in the end, and Harlequins are through to the round of 16. Oh my word, Cardiff must be gutted. Uh, one more side note to close. The sound engineers did a really good job with like the crowd noise and the ambiance and everything this time. I didn't really notice the the fact that the seats were empty until you know quite a ways into the match this time. Very natural. Well done. Let's hope round four is back to the real thing. That would be fantastic. So... God almighty, my fatigue level with this GD pandemic is just so high at this stage. Ugh. Anyway, moving on. Cast versus Munster was next. And in my notes, I said, ooh, two minutes in and I already love this match. So I know almost nothing about Cast. And my first impression in this one was, wow, do they like quick ball. It was a it was a nice chilly evening. The steam is cascading off the heads of the players. That always makes a game just more compelling somehow. And despite the crowd restrictions, there's still a full brass band going at it in the audience. I love watching games in France. So an actual skirmish managed to break out after about 10 minutes. And Luke Pierce, our referee, he was not having it. You don't usually hear him raise his voice, but he sounded pissed. So we'll see how long the piece would last. Munster got themselves a penalty out of it, turned it into three points with a beautiful strike. I've got to say here, it's a joy to watch Hellcast attack every ruck, every breakdown. They are absolute fiends out there. Bodies are just being laid to waste. It's so aggressive, so much fight from both sides. Uh, you know, I just mentioned the audio in the last one. Got to say, the audio was a bit screwy for this one. The comms were so low in the mix, you basically couldn't even hear them. I was hoping someone would catch it and fix it at the halftime, but that didn't end up happening. In any event, these two teams were too busy smashing the crap out of each other to actually score any more points for a while until Cast used uh, just an endless pick-and-go power game to brutalize their way in for a try, aided by a sweet little kick over the top, very well executed. I just don't see how any of these dudes will be able to move tomorrow. It's going to be a hospital zone. So uh, I, I wrote here, I, I think the flip side of the hyper-aggressive style is the ensuing number of knock-ons. So both sides are just, they were coughing it up left and right. I mean, probably the conditions played into it a little bit as well. Munster got three more early in the second period, and around 50 minutes they again lined up to try to kick themselves back into the lead, which they would do with the help of a holder, NFL style. Somehow that always kind of cracks me up. I don't know why. So about 642 handling errors later, it was a cast turnover at the sticks. Oh, it was cast turn at the sticks, I should say. 
retaking a single point lead. This one was truly up for grabs at the 60 minute mark. Just, you could tell people were just starting to look absolutely cashed out there. I was very unsurprised to see the legions of replacements coming on at that stage. Munster, they may have gotten away with one, throwing a player hard to the ground, but even with no card or even review, Cast were happy with the penalty and extended their lead to 13-9 to with 13 minutes left in the match. A precarious lead in a game like this one. Exciting action late with Munster risking going for the corner rather than just taking three with under 10 minutes remaining. Interesting gamble for sure. And so right on cue, Cast, they, they steal the line out. The players and fans were jubilant at the release of pressure. Soon after that, yet another Munster knock-on, and Cast has had the ball within Munster territory with about five minutes left. The mistakes continued, however, and Munster were able to go to the corner, execute a perfect line-out and driving ball, and they retook the lead with seriously like two less than two minutes left. It was 13-16 to 16 after the extras, of course, and with the restart, all they had to do was field the kick cleanly and kick it out. Definitely ended with a whimper rather than a bang. It was a, a little bit of a wah-wah, but... A hard-fought match, all in all. A big win for Munster once again. So, of course, then, we move on to Saturday, where we had Wasps at home for Toulouse. So this was another hard-fought match with the current champs coming to Coventry for, once again, what I'd assumed would end up sort of being a bit of a beatdown, especially when Toulouse scored their opening try within literally the first minute and a half. But Wasps, they were undeterred. And uh, they took the lead despite a questionable red card shown to Jacob Umaga. That one was a head-scratcher for sure. So down a man, Wasps were up 14-10 to 10 to start the second half. They looked to be gaining momentum somehow. Drop-dead gorgeous supermodel and world top-10 player Roman Entomac was slightly off his usual game, I thought. And Toulouse looked a little sloppy for what I had been expecting. So, little side thing, I, ha I have to say it was nice to see Odogwu back out there. Not only did he make huge contributions for Wasps, his name his name just really cracked up my son, who decided that that's exactly what he would say at a pet store. He'd say, oh, dog, woo! In any case, Toulouse had committed 14 penalties to Wasps, 8 at this stage. Uh, the home team added to their score to make it 17-10 to 10 when Toulouse got yellow carded for a similar incident to the red card earlier, but the ref said there was mitigation this time. All these things are starting to become increasingly head scratchy. Uh, Toulouse were looking for, they're lo looking a bit shell shocked to me at that point. Wasps turned that infraction into another three, extending their lead to 10 at the 56 minute mark. Toulouse responded by sending Wolverine out onto the field. That was going to get interesting. <laughs> anyway, if you watch the game, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. It's uncanny. Toulouse, they quickly got another try, described with the comms as, quote, way too easy, unquote. Uh, but without the extras, it remained 20-15. to 15, But oh my gosh, Alfie Barbary again, over the top, just timed it perfectly to grab another turnover. The man is a machine. Of course, the Toulouse uh, yellow card ran out with about 15 minutes remaining. Wasps really needed to batten down the hatches at that point. And then Alfie, again, oh my word, Barbary powers through for yet another try. It's going to be very hard not to make him my diamond in the ruck this week. He simply just does everything out there. What a player. What a performance. After the extras, it was 27-15 heading into the final 10, and it really looked like as if Toulouse just may have thrown in the towel at that point. It must be said, Wasp's defense had been just unbelievable on the day. It was an extraordinary display. Just top, top-tier stuff. I, I wish I knew why this hasn't you know translated into the Prem for them at this stage. They looked fully in control for the remainder. They managed to force a couple of penalties to increase their score, 
Weird decision to kick three at the end rather than going for a bonus point try. I think that might end up being a mistake long term, but realistically, you know, it's unlikely to derail this particular campaign in Europe. Toulouse did they they, they did show grit right to the end, but they did not look like the current champions on the day. Not at all. They lost in common in the Coventry money pit money pit. I called it with uh, thirty to twenty two being the mystifying final score. Interesting, interesting stuff. So Connacht were then at home for Leicester. It was so lovely to be back at the sports ground. I just can't get enough of that stadium. Great stat by Ryle Nugent on the comms right at the start. The Tigers' first official visit to Galway makes this the 46th ground that Leicester Tigers have visited in their European competition history. That's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Leicester, they immediately looked back to where they should be right off the bat. They scored a try within the first couple of minutes. The comms are gushing over how great Genji has been of late. They do mention that, quote, the red mist descended a bit last week, but just for a moment, unquote. But I I don't know. I, I disagree. I feel like the red mist just surrounds him. It's like uh, Pigpen and, and Peanuts. The red mist is just always there. It just never lifts. I feel like that's just a big part of his game, and maybe it's what makes him so good. So, Murray Murivalu, he scored another try for Leicester, making it look way too easy. I'm sure he didn't even bother to get up to full speed that time. The home seed looked overmatched in the first 10 minutes, despite a Tiger side without some of their top performers. So Cardi, then he went on to miss his first chance at points, and the comps point out his percentage is down to 71 at this stage, and that is an issue for Connacht, for sure. After 15 minutes, Leicester were up 10 to nil. Not shaken, the home side answered back swiftly and got to within three a couple minutes later. So Connacht took the lead eventually, and much like Toulouse earlier, Leicester began with all the momentum and then watched it ebb away. It was 14 to 10 at 30 minutes gone by. Of course, as soon as I wrote that, boom, Murray Moravalo scores. He tears off on another breakaway, just dropping Connacht defenders like flies off a bug zapper. What a phenomenal talent he is. I can't believe his name just hasn't come up in this space previously. It's very strange to me. So the second half started with a score unchanged until Kieran Marmion, another fantastic name, by the way, absolutely danced his way over the line for a try. And Connacht were up by 11, only a few minutes in. Soon after that, finding themselves up a man due to a Tigers yellow card, Connacht got themselves their bonus point try and extended the lead to 18. What has become of these Tigers? Naturally, Murray Murivalu got himself a second try at the 56-minute mark, and Leicester looked intent on bringing this one back around. So it was still 28 to 17 when uh, when it was down to the final 10 minutes, but I would not have counted out Leicester at that moment. Sure enough, they scored and converted another try, found themselves down only four with seven and a half to play, and Connacht, they had to be collectively crapping themselves just a tiny bit at that point. My notes read with only two minutes remaining and the margin unchanged. It'll take some mammoth defense by Connacht to pull this one out. It feels like a Leicester game despite the score right now. So reading my mind... <laughs> Leicester's Salamaki, he got a beautiful try out wide, and the Leicester machine has found a way to get back up by the slimmest of possible margins with under a minute to go. With the extra still to come, Connick must have been just absolutely reeling. And that was it, the home side dropping a game where they'd found some serious dominance early on. The winning try being a controversial one for sure, with Bundiaki vehemently arguing with Matthew Renal after the final whistle. Not, not a good look. And a very, very tough feat for my favorite sons from Galway. 28-29 was the one-point defeat for them at the death. What an absolute ringer of a match. Moving on, next we had Ospreys at home for Racing 92. And brilliant comms right at the kickoff, labeling this match the Battle of the Budgets, which has had me laughing hard enough that I actually had to pause the game. 
So yes, my guess once again heading into this one was it was going to be a pasting by the the bourgeoisie over the Welsh proletariats on the day. And based on their uniforms, I was kind of more looking forward to buying cookies from them in the parking lot after the game. Anyway, Rassing, they looked like they found themselves in position for great opportunities over and over, but even though they were guilty of some sloppy handling, it was Osprey's defense that made the difference, at least to keep the visitors to only three points throughout the first 20 minutes. By the way, Gareth Anscombe, he looks effing great out there, and that makes me so happy. I, I can't believe the ordeal this man endured, and here he is again. What a player. What an all-time great player. For real. I mean, ugh, can't say enough. So, Ospreys, they got the first try at the quarter mark. Another upset in the making, I wrote. Uh, and speaking of Anscombe, the conversion by him made it 20 out of 20 kicks for him since his return. You can't make this stuff up. So, as Rassing were trying to get their attack going, the comms described one of their players... <laughs> One of the wrestling players says, quote, like the devil's henchman, unquote, which is about as good as it gets. So make it 21 straight for Mr. Anscombe as Ospreys took their lead to seven uh, behind his faith faithful boot. This with about 10 minutes left in the first half, though Rassing would finally get one of their own very late. And the score was 10 to 8 going into the intermission. Another tight one. So after getting yellow carded early in the second half, Ospreys luck started to turn sour a bit with Anscombe missing for the first time. 25 months, by the way, was the time he was out. Just incredible that he's back at all. And then a tiny mishandle and Vakatawa is in for what the comms describe as a ruthless try, though it looked like a fair and impartial try from where I sat. Uh, the breakaway was started was started by some very nifty play, by the way, by Finn Russell, whose name I'm kind of shocked hasn't come up yet. It was 10 to 15, Rassing heading into the final 20 minutes, and that was an effing beautiful try. International star Kemi shot. In other words, the Kami Cat, he came in for the French side and immediately made a huge impact. Oh my word, he just has the softest paw, I mean, hands. For, you know, for a big man, he's just a slice of magic when he gets the ball. So with 15 minutes left, Osprey secured a crucial turnover deep in danger territory. They looked confident that they could get this one back. Currently Beal, by the way, was out there putting his signature on this one as well. I feel like that guy's currently playing on four different teams on at least three continents. Like, how many Curtly Beals are there right now? Does anyone know? So, then my boy, the mighty Finn, a long, long penalty to make it an eight-pointer, which really put the squeeze on Ospreys. It was 10 to 18 with about a dozen minutes to go. Shortly thereafter, the comms again outdo themselves, saying a player was, quote, trying to make a cake with crumbs, unquote. I can't wait to steal that one for my own. So then, and it felt like a long time coming, Teddy Toma, recently of the shaved pate. Sorry, bud, you looked about a thousand times better with the dreads. But he scored what looked like, I don't know, a, like a practice walkthrough try. He basically didn't crack a sweat, didn't even get up to 30% of his needed speed. Like, he's just so elusive and powerful at the same time. Suddenly, Rassinger thinking bonus point try, and and that's where the affair landed in the end. Osprey's going from a confident lead to zero league points, or table points, I should say, to take away with them. It, you know, it just seems indicative of their general plight these days. A professional, if sloppy, performance by Rassing. They can look poor and still be a powerhouse. They, they just, to me, they're a microcosm of France in general, like, at least on the international test stage. And got to admit, they are just always so much fun to watch. So moving on. Next, it was Exeter v. Glasgow. So, uh, so I sort of set this match aside as like a special treat to just sort of enjoy. And that, uh, yeah, that, that kind of backfired on me. I was like, okay, put down the notes, just watch like a regular old fan, just relax, enjoy the performance. And, 
you know, obviously the first part of that plan worked. I did, in fact, put away the notes and watch, but uh, enjoying it, well, not so much. It was a, it was a pretty much a full-on butt whooping from the start, and uh, the only thing I really have to report is 52 to 17 at full time. And frankly, it looked worse than that. I'm serious. Not a good showing for Glasgow. Next, we had La Rochelle versus Bath. This one was almost as foggy as the match in Glasgow just several weeks ago. Visibility on the broadcast was diabolical. I can only hope that the reduced crowd could see better than I could. So for a French crowd, they definitely seemed subdued, though their team would go on. And seriously, I'm not exaggerating with this. Their team went on to score first, second, third, and fourth, piling up a commanding 20 to zip lead after just the first half. Not Bath Day at all. And then La Rochelle would add another three more unanswered tries before Bath finally registered their first points of the day. The score was 39 to 7 with only the final quarter to play. Worth mentioning, this was the first bad game of the weekend. Amazing. I mean, you could say the Glasgow game was worse, but as far as I'm concerned, that game didn't actually happen. So there. Anyway, Bath would get another and then still another. The seesaw was in full effect, though I, I think we still all knew where this one was ending. The visitors were making the scoreboard look more and more respectable as the misty affair rolled on. It was 39 to 21 with 15 minutes left, and my notes, along with Bath scoring, dried up at that point, getting a yellow card for themselves along the way and getting no table points to show for their trip. The 18-point differential at the end, holding fast to full time. Next, we had Bristol at home for Stade Francais. Oh my gosh, the uniforms in this one. Did you see? It was like the bubblegum machine versus the Cosby sweaters. Holy crap. The comp said, quote, this French side might have a bit of the not interested in this tournament anymore about them, unquote, which is uh, not what you want to hear going into a big match. So Harry Randall was doing Harry Randall stuff. His lightning breakaway immediately after a scrum penalty led to a gorgeous try for the game's first points, a try right between the posts for my son's favorite stuffed animal, Purdy. <laughs> and uh, also, I know I've said it before, but the fact that Callum Sheedy wastes approximately zero time before making his kicks, that just truly endears him to me. He's like the anti-Owen Farrell. Worth noting, the ref actually pinged Randall for taking more than five seconds after calling use it. That is so rare. You forget that they actually are allowed to do that. It was phenomenal. You know, when they when they say use it and nothing happens, and they say use it and nothing happens, eventually it starts to feel like the old stop or I'll say stop again thing. It's just very frustrating. Anyway, and by the way, at one point, the comms described Max Lahif, one of the players out there, as having, quote, the body of a bodybuilder and the mind of Oscar Wilde. And I don't think I've ever heard such a b bizarre description of a man before. Oscar Wilde? Like, how confusingly specific is that? Anyway, Stad managed to almost accidentally get a try right as halftime sounded. So despite being just completely dominated for 40 minutes, the score was a very doable 14-7 to going into the break. Stad would get three more points before Harry Randall was back to being Harry Randall, dicing and dancing his way in for another try. I love any of the little players who, who they sort of play like water bugs. They just dance in between and big guys are like hugging the air, trying to, trying to tackle him. It's so much fun. So that made it 21-10 to after 50 minutes with the lead increasing to 28 to 10, only 10 minutes later. So Stad would need to find a whole new level to keep any hope for this fixture. By the way, Nagani Lamape, formerly of, I think, the Stormers down in New Zealand, he plays for Stade Francais. I haven't even heard his name today. Like, where is he? Is he injured? Damn, I miss seeing that guy. 
Anyway, thankfully, Stead didn't just fold up their tent and wander off into that good night. They managed an impressive score with about those 15 minutes left, but it still looked an awfully steep incline to the top of that particular mountain. Harry Randall finally came out with about 10 minutes to go. What a performance by him. So good to watch. In the end, Stead got no closer than that 11, the match ending 28-17. And, you know, I love this stuff. It was just heartwarming to see the affection between Nick Sanchez and Kellum Sheedy after the final whistle. What a sport this is. So then, on Sunday the 16th, it was Leinster at home from Montpellier. It took no time at all for the Goliaths of the URC to lay a marker down. And as my favorite commentator opined, it was an absolutely gorgeous day for it. On yet another side note, those blue and white kits with the gold highlights for Leinster, they are stunning. It just doesn't get much better than that. While, meanwhile, on the other side, Montpellier, they looked exactly, exactly like the Lego rugby figures I've got here at home. It's uncanny. It must be, they must have been modeled after. And I, I got to look into that. Anyway, back to the match where Leicester basically looked like, they basically looked at this tiny little can of whoop-ass in front of them. And they were like, sure, I don't mind popping that B. And so six tries in the first half. The first half gave them a 40-7 to seven advantage before they'd even gone to the locker room. It looked a lot like New Zealand versus well, the United States, quite frankly, it was just a runaway. Anyway, 75 points. I mean, why not? We're rung up before they were even, before there were 10 minutes left to go. The comms said it was getting, quote, professionally embarrassing, unquote, which might have been a comment, you know, 60 minutes before that. So after a, well, I don't want to be here anymore, red card against Montpellier, Leinster scored their 12th. What's that? Yes, their 12th try. And at that point, the All Blacks were beating the Eagles by 82 to... Oh, wait, what's that? Oh, right, it's not that match from October here in D.C. It's theoretically an actual rugby match played between theoretically semi-equivalent sides. What on earth has unfolded here? So as the home side scored another Redonkey try, converted once again, it was 89, 80 effing 9 to 7 meager points for the opposition. But somehow... My boy, my boy, Ryle Nugent, he's saying that, you know, Leinster didn't really reach their potential on the night. So every other team in this competition, you might want to buckle up. Continuing to move on, Bordeaux Begla were at home for Scarlets. It was a gorgeous day in Bordeaux to no one's surprise. And heading in, once again, I had absolutely no idea what to expect. It would be a full 20 minutes before anyone could get any points on the board, but when they did, quelle erreur, Bordeaux scored one in the manner of, according to the comms, the Harlem Globetrotters, which was fully apt. I had to agree with that one. It was magical. And a little addition here. On top of that, Jalabert, he did something that also reminded me of sort of top-level basketball content competition, the best NBA point guards, where basically he had an opportunity to score one for himself. It probably, it was like a, 95% chance he was going to score it, but instead he makes the extra pass. Kind of a tough pass, too. A little skip pass to Moti. I mean, he went from like a 95% I'm going to score it myself to like an 88. This guy will score it, but you got to reward the big man. If you don't reward your big man from running in the length of the, the field or the, the court, they're going to stop doing it. It was just brilliant. I love seeing little parallels like that. Great stuff by the home side. It was 21-0 at halftime. And speaking of which, another unique aspect of watching these games here in the U.S. is our halftime is just completely different than what you'd see in here if you were in, like, the U.K., for instance. So in this case, during halftime, the comms are clearly 
looking at highlights and clips as they were sort of breaking down the first half of play. But here, what I'm watching, it's literally just a solitary shot from an unmoving camera, just watching the mists as they rolled gently over the outskirts of the stadium. It was it was hypnotic. It was a, just a visual feast. And these little nuances really have wormed their ways into my rugby heart. Just great stuff. Anywho, I wrote, <laughs> Bordeaux had been so dominant for the first 50 minutes, you almost had to sort of blink and shake your head a little bit to believe it when Liam William actually got a nice, lovely crossing kick for a quick and easy try. But sure enough, your eyes had not deceived you. They actually had points on the board. Bordeaux would let in another shortly after, but it was obvious they'd kind of just stopped playing defense so that they could concentrate on celebrating. And the score started to become ridiculous at that point. But So then both the actual visibility along with the quality of rugby both turned this one pretty unwatchable. And so after gutting through the final 10 minutes, it was mercifully at an end. The final score was 45 to 10. I think I needed a hot shower after that one. Oy vey. And then Northampton versus Ulster. So the people in charge at Peacock are still, like many of us here, figuring out this whole rugby thing. So the match actually disappeared from my feed for like eight hours before reappearing erroneously under the heading Challenge Cup. But hey, man... When you live in the United States, you don't complain about the before and after these games. You just got to be happy you can watch them at all. So <laughs> this, I'm still laughing about this. Right at the start, so, you know, they bring featured players out onto the field first for the crowd and everything. So right at the start, so Courtney Laws comes out. He has a gaggle of children around him. And the commentators are saying, Courtney Laws with 250. And I'm like, Kids! But no, no, no. It was caps for Northampton. I was like, oh, wait, what, what is he, the Sean Kemp of rugby right now? Anyway, uh, no Jacob Stockdale for an ankle injury tonight, and also no Cooney with no explanation. Though, as always, there's no pregame info at all for the American broadcast, so who knows. So a guy instead named Nathan Doak, uh, rhymes with bloke, who looks like maybe like a three-episode sort of recurring character from Peaky Blinders, he did an admirable job for the visitors, and he got his first ever try in Europe to put his team up by 12 points after only 15 minutes, and uh, getting that Northampton-y feeling again. Yet another side note here. As an American, one of the big reasons you watch an inherently British sport is the commentary, because, you know, while we're all speaking English, it's, it's just not the same. Within just a few, phase, uh, a few phases, we got these two great comments. We got, well, that's a door-splitting charge, which is a phrase I'd never encountered before, but immediately understood. And right after that, they described someone who'd been leveled while trying to make a tackle as looking poleaxed, which, you know, I was absolutely tickled. Anyway, back to the game. And this was yet another incredibly tight matchup. Northampton had gotten back to within three with only a minute or two left in the first half when Ulster stole, stole a magical chance and grabbed five more points before the extras. So despite an endless review by the ref, who I'm pretty sure was one of those creepy dolls in Toy Story 4, I'm pretty sure that's, if if he's not one of them, that's who they were modeled after. Anyway, it was 10 to 19 going into the break. Around 55 minutes, the Saints got themselves yellow carded. How many has that been this weekend so far? But the score was still close. It was 13 to 19, just before the third quarter. But like Irish lightning, Ulster broke it out wide for a cushion try, found themselves up by 11 with maybe 17 or 18 minutes left at that point. Alarm bells were ringing for the Saints, unless maybe they don't hear those bells anymore because they are ringing so frequently. So it was kind of magical to see Northampton answering back right when they could have thrown in the towel, and they did the, the, the quickest conversion to get the extras I've ever seen, leaving a theoretical half a minute on the clock to get a restart, but 
teeny tiny knock on, it sealed their fate. It was 20 to 24 for Ulster, who must have felt relieved, and are assured now to advance in this increasingly batty tournament. Yet another tight, exciting matchup. Are you all starting to get how fun these European competitions are? Woo! So Claremont, we're at home to face Sale Sharks. You gotta love those French fans just mercilessly booing and catcalling the kickers every single time. It, it's lovely. I really appreciate the effort. In this case, didn't really make much of a difference, though. Sale managed to draw themselves level at 12 on a perfect conversion. So again, was not sure what to expect with this one. I'm, I've complained about it here probably a bunch of times that I can't find a way to watch top 14 where I live. So these teams are always a mystery to me, though, okay, I'm thinking about it now, and I admit that's kind of part of the appeal of the Euro Cups to me. Okay, complaining officially done. So this one, it quickly turned into a barn burner with Sale, getting pinged for a deliberate knock-on, which somehow didn't prevent Claremont from scoring a try to tie it up at 19 going into the intermission. This one was just so tight. I don't think the score changed for the next 30 minutes or so, if I'm right. Uh, but Claremont, they were able to slot two penalties as the clock wore down, and while Sale made a valiant, valiant effort and had a real serious opportunity at the very end, Claremont, the defense was able to close it out. They held off their rivals, got themselves a famous home win, 25-19 to 19, all told. So, for the record, to wrap up all this stuff in a little bit, you know, a little little tiny bow, nice little shiny bow with a little uh, EPCR ta- uh, label on it. So this weekend's Champion Cup fixtures featured 591 total points scored, five games with only six or fewer points separating winners from losers, five away wins, and three blowouts, two of which were victories of exactly 35 points, kind of interesting, and one of which, lest we forget, by 82. Is this some serious rugby action or what? Okay, that of course brings us to our coveted Diamond in the Ruck Award, and this week I have to bestow the honors on Kenny Murray Murivalu of Leicester Tigers. Mr. Murray Murivalu, 32 years young, you were an absolute wrecking ball out there this weekend. Nobody in either tournament made it look quite as easy as you did. So your two tries and your nail-biting come-from-behind victory in Galway was only the tip of the iceberg for all the things you brought to the table for your side. I know you missed some time lately, but holy cow, you are clearly back and better than ever. Just an unstoppable force on the pitch. Congratulations, my friend. You are the lucky recipient of this week's prestigious Diamond in the Ruck Award. Please enjoy all the fame and adoration about to cascade down your way. Well done, sir. Okay, of course, that brings us to our previews for next weekend. And once again, there will be an equal number of matches that we're going to be looking at. So in the Challenge Cup that I'm not going to be able to watch, but we'll just give you your, your faithfully uh, report your scores for you. On Friday, we'll have Lyon at home versus Benetton. Benetton, they're kind of doing that sneaky thing they did last year where they're just under everyone's radar, but keep kind of winning games. So Edinburgh will be back at home for Breve. That, that's a big one for them. Then on Saturday, my birthday, It'll be Zebre at home for Worcester. Ugh, God. Nobody's going to watch that. Or at least I'm not. Then we'll have Gloucester at home versus Perpignan. And Toulon will be at home for Newcastle. And then on Sunday, Saracens. <laughs> so str- it's 
still so strange to see them in the Challenge Cup. It's like, what? Uh, but they'll be facing London Irish, so I'm actually probably going to be rooting for Saracens that time. Anyway, moving on. The Champions Cup, of course, on Friday, the 21st. Harlequins will be at home for cast. So that's a good one. And then again, on my birthday. So much rugby on my birthday. I know what I'm doing that day. My gift is going to be waking up early, not getting out of my pajamas, and watching about eight games of rugby. So it's going to be Toulouse to start it off at home versus Cardiff. Bath will be at home for Leinster. Okay, might skip that one. I mean, oh my gosh. Oh God, that's going to be like a three points to 162 points anyway Leicester will be at home for Bordeaux that could be a really good one Ulster will be at home for Claremont Scarlets will be at home for Bristol and Glasgow have a chance to get some redemption versus La Rochelle then on Sunday Sale Sharks will be at home for Ospreys Stade Francais will be at home for Connacht Munster will be facing Wasps Racing 92 versus Northampton and finally to end the weekend Montpellier versus Exeter so let me just double check this on my birthday there's one two Three, four, five, six matches. Oh, that's great. Of course, one of them's at least one of them's unwatchable, but what a glut of rugby. So good. I can't wait. I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I am. What a great tournament. Well, my friends, that should do it for this week. Wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for listening. It's been fantastic. Thank you for reaching out. I love hearing from you. I hope more and more of you continue to do so. It's just one of the best things about doing this whole thing. So as always, if you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter. I am at of Scrum. You can find me at the Scrum of the Earth podcast on Instagram. And you can always just shoot me an email via the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. If you could bring yourself to leave me a nice review, that would be magic. And if you like what we're doing here, there are a couple of ways you can show your support listed in the show notes for this episode. So, once again, by the way, this marks a half a year. This is the 26th weekly episode. There's about, <laughs> there's at least as many bonus episodes on top of that, but this is technically the 26th weekly episode. We just passed the half year mark, my friends. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming along. To all of you across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. And as always, be well.